So find Hebrews 11 in your Bible. We're going to look again at verses 30 through 40. Fairly lengthy section there at the end of Hebrews 11. But it's a rich, rich section as well. So after you've found that in your Bible, stand uh, and let's read it together. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, your people of faith throughout history are all one family because of our faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the true Savior of the world. And Lord, we thank you that as we read this account, we know that uh, those in the Old Testament era who believed you and trusted you for that future Messiah and lived by faith, that they are examples to us, even though they were looking ahead and we are looking back to the reality of Christ and his life and his uh, sinless uh, example and his atoning work on the cross, that we too are people of faith, that we too are part of this company of those who are justified by faith. And Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, uh, we pray this morning that uh, we would be encouraged, that we would uh, know that uh, you have a plan for all of us who are your people of faith and that uh, our uh, desire is to please you, that we who, who sometimes maybe face persecution, uh, suffering, adversity in this life, that we would stand firm in the faith. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would inspire us through these examples. 
uh, Lord, that uh, we would also be pleasing in your sight, that uh, we would uh, be those who also exhibit true faith in you and trust you completely. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless this morning, that you would use your word in our lives once again, and that our worship would be pleasing to you in every aspect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago, we started going through this lengthy section at the end of Hebrews 11. And I have entitled this, Faith Demonstrated Through Courage. In this section, we have a number of saints, both named and unnamed, that demonstrated their faith in God by their courage. And when you boil it all down, biblical faith is really trusting God's Word. It is believing what God says, whether we understand it or not. It is following God's way when everyone else is going a different way. Biblical faith demonstrates courage in trusting God, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. Now, we saw Moses demonstrate this kind of courageous faith as he stood against the most powerful man in his day, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But we also see many others who did the same, and they are listed for us in this last section of Hebrews 11. We return to that passage this morning. This was another two-parter, and we didn't get all the way through this passage last time, but it's been a couple of weeks, so let's go back and quickly review what we have already seen. The first thing we saw was courage in the midst of struggle. The author of Hebrews moves from the time of Moses to the period of history when the Israelites are ready to capture the promised land. And not surprisingly, he skips over the 40 years of wilderness wanderings because he has already told us this was a period of faithlessness. And we don't find any examples of faith from that generation, even though they saw firsthand the mighty plagues of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea. They saw that with their own eyes, but they instead exhibited unbelief. And as you know, they constantly grumbled and complained against Moses. And so God let them all die in the wilderness. But the author of Hebrews finds some key examples of faith in the second generation, and he points to two of them in verses 30 and 31. The first one that he points to is what we would call the faith of the obedience. Look again at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. After wandering aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years, the second generation of Israelites had now miraculously crossed the Jordan River in much the same way as they had crossed the Red Sea 40 years earlier. And what should have only taken 40 weeks 
took more than 40 years because of their unbelief. But now God is moving them into the possession of the promised land. And there is much optimism and much excitement on behalf of the people. But as soon as they cross the Jordan, there standing in their way is this fortified city of Jericho. It had to be defeated if they were going to enter the land of promise. And we spent a lot of time, but we won't go back over all of that, looking at this great victory, but noting that it took faith for the people of God to trust Him that He would fight for them on their behalf and to trust Him to bring down the walls of this fortified city, even when that looked impossible. Secondly, we saw the faith of the outcast. Look again at verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. This is one of the most amazing statements in all of Scripture. Because Rahab was not a very likely candidate to appear in the Hall of Faith. Apart from Sarah, she is the only woman to appear in this list. Not only that, the Bible tells us she was a prostitute, and we saw uh, what that involved last time. In addition to being a prostitute, she was also a pagan Gentile who worshipped a false god. And in all likelihood, she was a priestess or prophetess in a pagan religion that deified sexual desires. She was completely pagan. She was not under the covenant. She was not familiar at all with God's law. She did not have any of the benefits of knowing the mandates of God. And not only was she a Canaanite, but in fact she was an Amorite, a race of people that had long been marked out by God for destruction. She is an amazing example of God's grace. And we saw this thrilling account of her conversion and her salvation, which is alluded to here by the author of Hebrews. Her faith was based on God's mighty acts. She had no special revelation from God that we know of. But her faith was based on the general revelation of what she observed that God did on behalf of his people. And her conclusion that Yahweh was the true God was based on the fact that he had led the people through the Red Sea on dry grounds. And that he then had destroyed the Egyptian armies. And then beyond that, that the people of Israel had killed the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og. And because she was an Amorite herself, this would have made a great impression on her, because these were... Her own people. But by God's grace, she had come to the conclusion that the God of Israel is the one true God. 
And again, we, we spent a lot of time on her amazing, courageous faith. And we see from the salvation of Rahab that there is never anyone that is too sinful and too despicable for God to save. God's grace is sufficient. If there is repentance and genuine faith in the heart of the one who is confronted with the truth of God's person and plan, there is salvation and deliverance in him. But I want to move now to a third group that I'm simply calling the others. Look with me at verse 32. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Here is a transition that is made from one list of examples to another. The transition is made with the rhetorical question, What more shall I say? In other words, this would be similar to asking, how many more examples do I need to give? In other words, what he has given is more than adequate to make his point about faith. But there are many, many other examples to bolster his argument. But then he makes it clear that he doesn't have time or space to go into details in regard to these other examples. The six names that he gives here are all leaders of some kind. Some are very well known and others are less known. They're not listed in chronological order, but they span an interval all the way from the period of the judges to Israel's monarchy. Four of them are judges. One is a prophet and a judge, and the other is a king and a prophet. However, none of these men are praised for their office. Instead, they are praised for their courageous faith. Let's quickly run through these. But, as the author of Hebrews points out, we can't afford to spend much time on each one. I'm sure he was thinking that if he gave too much detail, his sermon would last too long, and in the same way, I don't want you to miss lunch. Nevertheless, each one is worthy of consideration, so we'll touch on each one. We start with Gideon. As you may know, Gideon was a reluctant military leader and judge. He is perhaps most well-known for putting out a fleece by which God convinced him that he could trust God to use him to deliver Israel. And by the way, don't be trying to put out a fleece to find God's will. If you read the story about Gideon carefully, you will find that the fleece was put out because of his unbelief, not because of his belief. And it took two times with the fleece, and even his going down into the Midianite camp and overhearing the Midians' 
uh, Midianites confessed that God was going to give Gideon the victory, that he was finally convinced, okay, I can trust God. But besides that, any subjective method of finding God's will is not the way he wants us to operate in this dispensation. That's another sermon. I've got to get back to the main point here in Hebrews. Gideon initially amassed 32,000 troops to fight against the Midianites and the Amalekites, but to keep Israel from thinking that they had won the victory on their own, God whittled down the troops to only 300 men with nothing but pitchers and torches. The 300 were chosen, chosen amazingly by how they drank water from a brook. And as with many of the victories God won for his people, this was also against unbelievable odds. In Judges 7:12, we read that the enemy was as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, number as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, that's a pretty big army. But God gave his people an amazing victory with even fewer than it took to defeat Jericho. But the point was that Gideon led these 300 men into battle by faith. And although it took him a while and God had to help him overcome his doubt, he finally came around to trusting God and he was then included in God's whole faith. MacArthur writes, only a fool would have attempted such a courageous approach to battle apart from God's direction and power. At first, he was fearful and hesitant, but he eventually became a mighty conqueror by faith. Then he mentions Barak. It is pronounced Barak. I did look it up. This man is pretty much an unknown, except for his brief account in the book of Judges. The major emphasis of that section of Judges is on Deborah, who was the judge at the time. Barak was the commander of her army. And God had promised to give Israel victory over a massive Canaanite army with 900 iron chariots. Jabin, the Canaanite king, had Sisera as his commander. And again, it seems that God wanted to provide the victory in such a way that there would be absolutely no doubt that he did it. And according to the Lord's instructions, Deborah asked Barak to assemble an army from only two of the twelve tribes of Israel. So he rounded up a force of 10,000 men from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. Interestingly, Barak started off much like Gideon. He initially said he would not even go into the battle unless Deborah went with him. Now, that's probably because of her influence as a spiritual leader in Israel at the time. 
But he eventually assembled his troops on Mount Tabor and he charged Sisera's army as he had been commanded. And Judges 4.15 tells us, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. And of course, another interesting twist in the story is that Barak had been told by God that the glory of the victory would not be his, but that it would belong to a woman. And it was indeed a woman who actually killed Sisera. But the point for the author of Hebrews is that Barak ultimately trusted God. And through faith, he saw a great victory over the enemies of God's people. And again, this victory was obviously from the Lord. I mean, without God fighting for them, they would have been in serious trouble against such incredible odds. But God gave them the victory. And it's interesting uh, because in Judges... In very picturesque language, in Judges 5.20, we're told that the very stars fought from heaven against Sisera. This is the victory of courageous faith. Barak is an example of one who, by faith, conquered kingdoms, as it says in verse 33. Well, he moves on to Samson. And he is, of course, remembered for his amazing physical strength, but also for his spiritual and moral weakness. In many ways, we might not include him in a list like this because he was immature and self-centered. But he was, in fact, a man of faith. He never doubted that God was the true source of his strength, and he understood that his hair was only a symbol of that reality. At the end of his life, he believed God for one great final victory over the Philistines. And as you may recall, Samson was a judge in Israel during a time in which the Philistines were the primary enemy. The accounts of his incredible physical strength are recorded for us in Judges 13 through 16, things like taking the the city gates and carrying them up the mountain. and I mean, just amazing things. We're told there that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Samson. And he accomplished some amazing one-man victories over the Philistines. I think we would have to say that Samson trusted God to these victories. And that he trusted God, of course, at the very end of his life for that one final victory when he, his own life was taken, but he brought down the house on all the Philistines. Then there's Jephthah. Oh boy, what are we going to do with this guy? Of course, he was a judge in Israel, but he is most known for the foolish vow that he made, which cost his daughter her life. Jephthah actually preceded Samson. 
And this was during those strange and bizarre days of the judges when men were doing what was right in their own eyes. The main enemy during Jephthah's days were the Ammonites. And Jephthah had to trust in God to give him the victory over this great enemy of God's people. And perhaps what we should see here with this example is that even people of faith make mistakes at times. Jephthah was indeed a man of faith, but he thought he could bargain with God by making a vow to secure the victory. And his vow was that if God would give him the victory, again, over incredible odds, that he would offer whomever or whatever came out of his house as he returned from battle. And, of course, it was his own daughter who came out to rejoice with him over his great victory. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that is one of the most difficult sections to read in all of the Bible. But the Word of God always paints it just like it is, warts and all, and that's one of the reasons why we know God's Word is reliable. But the bottom line here in Hebrews 11 is that even though Jephthah made a foolish vow, he also exercised faith in God. He trusted God to give him the victory. Well, the fifth person mentioned here is David. He was, of course, one of the greatest men in the Old Testament era, and yet he also was not without sin. The Bible tells us he was a man after God's own heart, and yet he committed adultery and even murder. David is the only one mentioned from the kingdom period of Israel's history. He, of course, was Israel's greatest king, and yet he was an unlikely candidate for that role from the very start. David's father, Jesse, did not even include David in the lineup of, of his sons when Samuel came to anoint a new king. David was not even considered, as is often the case God chose the unexpected. David's life of faith began, of course, as you know, as a young boy, watching over the sheep, trusting God to deliver him from wild animals such as lions and bears. His faith in God was dramatically demonstrated when he took a slingshot and defeated the giant Goliath. You know the story. Many years later, he trusted God to deliver him from the wrath of King Saul, who was seeking his life, and trusted him to place him on the throne of Israel. He won many victories by faith over the Philistines and other enemies. And so we see David mentioned as well. The next one mentioned is Samuel. And the interesting thing about Samuel is not it was that he was not a warrior. He did not win any military victories 
But the battle he fought was every bit as fierce as any military foe. His battle was against idolatry and immorality. His was a spiritual battle. His fiercest opponents were not the Philistines or the Amorites or the Canaanites, but his own people. And you know, sometimes it takes more courage to stand up and challenge your own people than to fight a foreign enemy. Samuel was a judge and a prophet in Israel. He was faithful to God throughout his entire lifetime, although he failed as a father to raise his own sons to follow in his steps. The author of Hebrews then mentions the prophets as a group. They are unnamed, except for Samuel, but they would have included such men as Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, among others. They included a wide variety of personalities and social positions. Ron Phillips says, from the aristocrat Isaiah to the country farmer Amos, they were all God's choices. And all of these saw great works wrought by faith. They did not fight on any battlefields, but they did, in fact, experience great victories. And they, too, conquered through the courage of faith. The exploits of verses 33 to 35a are general in nature and refer to all the people in verse 32. Look with me at verse 33. Who, by faith, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. That last phrase no doubt speaks of Daniel, but the conquering of kingdoms would apply to the judges and to David. The performing of acts of righteousness and obtaining promises characterized all of them. But go on to verse 34. Quenched the power of fire. That no doubt refers to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The phrase, escape the edge of the sword, is going to be contrasted with those who did not escape the edge of the sword. But here, victory is being emphasized. Specifically, these refer to deliverances from death. He goes on with the generalities. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. These are the words of victory by faith. These great heroes of the faith experienced mighty victories. Then he rounds out this section on victory with the first phrase of verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And of course we know that this happened in both the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah brought back to life the child of the widow of Zarephath, and Elisha did the same for the Shunammite woman's son. 
these women received back their dead by resurrection. And by the way, since we sometimes distinguish between the resuscitation of a person to mortal life and the final resurrection from the dead, our author uses a different phrase here to refer to the latter. At the end of verse 35, he points to a better resurrection to speak of the final resurrection from the dead. In those biblical incidents of uh, of resuscitation to mortal life, we assume that those who were raised eventually died again. But believers, as we know, will experience a final resurrection that will result in eternal life and no more death. So there's a distinction that is made here by the author of Hebrews. Now, all we have seen so far in this section deals with those who have experienced victory by faith. But in the middle of verse 35, there is a decisive shift. The health and wealth prosperity people love this passage up to this point. But they're not very crazy about it from this point on. So far, we have seen courage in the midst of struggle that leads to victory. Now we're going to see courage in the midst of suffering. Sometimes faith does not lead to deliverance from death. Sometimes it does not lead to some great victory, but to suffering. Interestingly, these who endured suffering by faith are not mentioned by name, although we know who some of them were. They are simply identified by the phrase, and others. And I think this is to include all the faithful martyrs down through the ages. There have been countless unnamed martyrs who remained faithful to Christ in the midst of their suffering and persecution and even death. And in the case of all these people of faith, God gave them the ability to endure through these trials, not to deliver them from them. Now, the health and wealth people do not know what to do with a passage like this. But it is just as much a part of biblical truth as the previous section. God doesn't always remove his people from suffering, even when they have faith in him. Sometimes it is God's will for his people to be victorious in the midst of suffering rather than to be delivered from it. Sometimes it is even God's will for them to give their lives for Christ's sake. Yes, there is victory, but it is spiritual in nature. And that, by the way, is the only kind of victory that God guarantees. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes it takes more faith to trust God in the midst of suffering than it does to trust God for deliverance from that. 
Greater courage is often needed in such situations. John MacArthur writes, Sometimes affliction is inescapable. Sometimes it is not. To the person of faith, no affliction is escapable that requires denial or compromise of God's Word. What is easily escaped for the worldly person is not for the faithful. Notice what the faithful are willing to endure by faith. And others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. The types of torture have been many and a wide variety. He goes on to verse 36 and following. He says, and others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these various forms in which the people of God suffered. Yikes! Is this where faith leads? Or some, yes. Or some, yes. The world is not worthy of these people of faith. But there have been many throughout human history who have demonstrated this kind of faith in God. Let's look very quickly at these in a little more detail. The word for tortured in verse 35 is a Greek word from where we get our English word, timpani, a kettle drum. The idea is that of stretching a person over a drum-like instrument and beating them with a club, usually until they died. The point is, the God's people of faith were willing to suffer like this rather than to compromise their belief in God and His Word. They know they will someday experience a better resurrection. And the eternal life that they experience, they know will far outweigh any suffering that they might have to endure in this world. The idea of not accepting their release refers to the deliverance that they would experience if they recanted and denied their faith in Christ. But countless people of faith throughout history have refused to do that and paid the price of martyrdom. The words for mockings and scourgings in verse 36 point to both physical and mental anguish. We know that Jeremiah, for example, was abused both mentally and physically. This is why he's referred to as the weeping prophet. Many suffered chains and imprisonments. Many were stoned to death, which was the common Jewish form of execution. Zechariah, we know, was put to death in this manner. Jewish tradition holds that Isaiah was sawn in two. MacArthur says the people became so 
irritated at his powerful preaching, they just cut him in half. Many were put to death with the sword. Many of the prophets went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. All of these were men of whom the world was not worthy, meaning that they did not deserve the ill treatment they received. But they were the ones who were truly victorious rather than those in the world, the ones who were faithful. The people of faith were the ones who were victorious. Well, I need to wrap this up. There's one last thing that we see in this passage, and that is confidence in the promise of salvation. Look with me at verse 39. And all these, that refers to all the examples of faith given really in the entire chapter, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't see it fulfilled. They were still looking ahead to its ultimate fulfillment. Salvation of God, the eternal life that was promised to them with the ultimate coming of the Messiah, none of them experienced in this life. They had to wait for it. The ultimate courage of faith is to cling to that divine hope and to believe God for future salvation. And really, we have to do the same. Because even though we know God's Word and we understand the gospel, we have not yet experienced that full salvation as of yet. We have to trust God for it. But they had absolute confidence that God would keep His Word and that they would, in fact, receive His eternal salvation, even if they had to die as martyrs in this life or to suffer severe persecution. They did not receive what was promised, but they gained approval through their faith. And then the author of Hebrews adds something that ties his own audience and us to the promise of God's salvation. Look at verse 40. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We also, those of us who believe, will also receive that something better, that better resurrection. And the body of Christ will one day be made perfect or complete when all of God's saints are in the folds. It was not until the coming of Christ, until the coming of the new covenant, that these Old Testament saints could be made complete. Until Jesus' atoning work on the cross was accomplished, God's salvation had not been made complete, but now it has been. And all who put their faith in Christ will receive it. In other words, their faith was based on what Christ one day would do. Our faith is based on what He already has done. Their faith looked forward to the promise. Ours looks back to the historical fulfillment. 
What about it this morning? Are we going to be a people of faith? Are we going to follow in their footsteps? Are we going to emulate their example? Are we going to put our full faith and trust in God and what He has done to redeem us? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning again that You would help us to understand Your plan. It is so clear from Your Word that You have accomplished our salvation in Christ, that which these in the Old Testament looked forward to. But we look back toward the cross, knowing that our salvation is full and perfect and complete. And so we embrace Christ. We put our faith and trust in Christ alone. And we thank you for the full assurance that we have as a result of that that we are justified by faith in Christ. So, Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this place today who has yet to do that, that they would do that this morning. And, Lord, that those of us who have received your salvation through Christ, that we would be faithful, that we would also live by faith and be people of faith in our daily lives. So, Lord, again, we pray you would challenge our hearts Help us to be all you want us to be. Help us to respond to your truth as you would want us to. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.